So I want to begin with a question because I want to know what you think. When you hear the word work, what comes to mind? What do you think about when you think of work? And if you have an answer, I'd like you just to shout it out. I want to know what you think. A job. Okay, work is a job. What else? Enjoyable. Enjoyable. Okay. Sometimes study. What? Sometimes study. Study? Studying, okay. All right, good. Responsible, okay. Identity. Identity, ooh, isn't that interesting? So much of our identity comes from our work, doesn't it? Yeah. Productive. Okay. Well, those are some good answers. I've asked this question in church periodically over the years, and the answers I mostly get are these, like a job, a paycheck, tedious, a grind, boss. Interesting. Now, sometimes, but far less often, I get answers like the ones you gave about responsibility and things like that. Sometimes I hear answers about satisfaction, accomplishment, self-reliance, and even joy. However, I rarely get an answer that has any kind of spiritual implication. And why is that? I think it's because for most of us, work in the marketplace, particularly, seems disconnected from the spiritual aspect of life. Of course, if you're in the ministry, like, hey, well, that's, that's spiritual, but the work that the rest of us do, that's not spiritual. And I think a lot of Christians wonder, does our work actually matter to God? And for me, this issue is very real and very personal because, as you know, after college, I worked in the marketplace for 12 years, and then I left the marketplace and entered the ministry, and I've now been a pastor for more than 30 years. And at the time I made that switch from marketplace to ministry, I found myself asking some questions about what this means in the kingdom of God. For example, I thought to myself, well, now that I'm a minister... Is God more interested in my work and more involved in my work than he was during my years in the marketplace? Is my work as a pastor more important to God than the work I used to do? Or does all work have significant spiritual value? I think these are really vital questions because the answers impact how we work. They impact the attitudes that we bring to work. Plus, if God actually values our work, then it changes the way that we understand him, I believe. And it changes the way we experience him. So we want to understand God's perspective on what's a very core aspect of human life. And the best place to start is in the very beginning. Because when God created mankind, he created work. And you know what? He gave us work as a gift. Look with me at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to work it and keep it. 
Now, that's one simple short verse, but, but because of where we find it in Scripture, it is packed with meaning. And part of understanding the meaning of a verse is to understand the context. So Genesis chapter 1 provides us with an overview of creation, showing the sequence by which God created the heavens and the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 2, that begins by telling us that creation was God's work. Just let that thought sift through your brain for a moment. Our Heavenly Father, God Almighty, chooses to work. And by doing so, He personally demonstrates that work has spiritual value. And then we find out that work isn't just reserved for God because God creates Adam and He places him in the perfection of Eden. And then in that perfect world, God gives Adam a job. Now, I, I think the implications of this are profound. And here's three implications that occur to me. Implication number one, every human being is made in the image of God, so our work is one significant way in which we reflect our likeness of Him. God worked in the act of creation, and He gives us work to do. And so our work is part of the stamp of God's character and nature on each of us. Which means that work is a godly activity. Let that hit your brain. Work is a godly activity. Now implication number two starts with a question. What possible work could Adam do in a place of perfection? After all, there weren't any weeds to hoe. He didn't have to spray any fertilizers to promote growth. Ah, but even in a perfect world, there was a cycle of life. At the very least, crops would grow. They would ripen. They'd need to be harvested. Perhaps, perhaps Adam had to dig irrigation channels to get the water from the river over to the to the fruit-bearing trees. I wonder if God perhaps even made the trees so they needed to be pruned for maximum growth. We don't know. What we do know is this. Whatever work Adam performed, God clearly designed the world so that Adam was required to play a role in providing for his needs and the needs of his family. Work was essential to his existence in a perfect world. Hmm, that's huge. And then this leads to implication number three. God clearly did not create Adam, so he would just lay around all day getting a tan. <laughs> Work gave Adam a reason to get up in the morning. Work brought rhythm to his days. Work gave him a sense of value and accomplishment. And just as we read early, earlier in Genesis, God could look at his finished work and say, oh, it's good. Adam also could look at his completed work and he could find satisfaction in doing a job and doing it well. And so here's what we can conclude. Even in a perfect and sinless world, work is vital, work is desirable, work is meaningful, and work therefore is holy. 
That's a word we usually don't associate with work. But work is holy because it's part of God's perfect plan. So a proper view of work starts with understanding that it is a gift, a gift from a loving Heavenly Father, a gift that's designed to bring meaning and order and purpose and satisfaction to our lives. And it's a gift that we can use to reflect His nature as we do our work. There's one other piece of this we need to understand. In modern Western culture, we usually equate work with wages. But that's a recent invention. For most of human history, people were subsistence farmers, and you didn't get a paycheck for doing that. You just tried to survive. Adam certainly didn't earn a salary. He didn't show up on Friday and say, okay, God, it's payday. And so we can't limit our idea of work to only those tasks that we do for money. So even if you're retired, you can still be involved in many types of meaningful work. If you're financially independent and don't need to earn a living, you still can find meaningful work to do. If you're married and your spouse earns the wages, you still can be responsible for some kind of productive work. And this plays out in many different ways in many different seasons of our lives. For example, when our children were young, for there was a season where my wife Julie was a stay-at-home mom for several years. And she wasn't paid for that, but oh, was that work. Right, moms? <laughs> yeah. That was hard work. Deeply valuable work. And quite honestly, some day, days when I came home from the office and realized what she'd been through, I said to myself, man, I'm making money for work that's a lot easier to do than what she's doing here in the home. That was a season in life. Then there was a retired couple I know here in the community, and they work for no pay at a local elementary school. Three mornings a week, they volunteer. And they spend time one-on-one -on -one with young boys and girls helping them learn to read. Sounds like pretty valuable work to me. I, I could provide countless examples, but I think you get the point. We can work in a variety of different ways. And it's all important. It's all important because it's all a gift from God. And whatever it is that God gives us to do, he wants us to find purpose in our work as Adam found in his. He wants it to give meaning and value to our lives. And he wants it not just to be meaningful to us, but through our work, he wants us to add value to the world. And so what we see here in Genesis 2.15 is that the pattern of work was set in the Garden of Eden. But then the world changed. And we don't live in the Garden of Eden. And we don't live in a world of perfection which means we don't live in an environment where work can perfectly be carried out. And the great tragedy of human history is that Adam and Eve thought they were smarter than God, and so sin entered the world. And as we know, sin distorts everything, including our experience of work. 
And so as Adam learns, and we're going to read this in a minute, one painful consequence of his sin is that work will become more difficult. And we, as descendants of Adam, inherit those same painful results. Our work now is hampered by sin. As God makes clear in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. And to Adam, he said, this is God speaking to Adam after Adam and Eve have sinned, and now he's pronouncing the various consequences for their sin. Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. See, God said, don't do it, and he did it. He disobeyed directly. And here's the consequence. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now it's really important to understand what God says and doesn't say here. As God pronounces these consequences, he doesn't say that he is cursing work. He doesn't say that work now is unimportant or that work is sinful. What he does say is that work will be hampered by sin. Adam's workplace, which is the ground, now is not going to be as easy for him to work. And from this point forward, Adam will have to start pulling weeds. Tilling the ground is going to be a lot harder, a lot sweatier. Now, I think it's true that most of us don't work in agriculture. So while Adam and Eve dealt with thorns and thistles in the garden, or after that time of sin when they had to leave the garden, he was pulling weeds, and, and we don't have to do that stuff on a regular basis unless we work in agriculture. You and I only encounter that if we're into taking care of our yards. Most of us don't do that every day. Some of us don't do that on a regular basis. <laughs> and then instead of pulling weeds or harvesting weeds, but that's another story. I, but I find myself wondering if we can let Adam's weeds serve as a metaphor for the challenges that we face in our non-agricultural work. After all, in any job, we can encounter all kinds of thorns and thistles, can't we? An irritating coworker <laughs> or a demanding supervisor. A complaining customer or a disruptive student. Annoying budget constraints or bureaucratic rules. There's all kinds of thorny obstacles that we may have to overcome to get our work done. And yet, here's something that's really important to see. God says, Adam, work's going to get harder but he doesn't say it's any less meaningful. Even in a sinful world, we can receive our work as a gift from God, a gift that fills our lives with purpose. And here's a really vivid example. There's an old story that's told about the, the Middle Ages in England. 
There's a man who starts walking through a site where this massive cathedral is being built. If you know anything about that, those were decades-long projects. And this visitor's never seen anything like this, and he wants to understand the various kinds of work that are being done. So he walks up to a stonecutter, and he says, hey, what are you doing? And the stonecutter, in a very surly voice, replies, I'm cutting a bloody stone. What do you think I'm doing? Well, that's one response to work. Then he walks up to an artisan who's making a stained glass window, and he says, what, what are you doing? And he says, I'm making a beautiful work of art. And it will be placed high up in the cathedral wall, and the sunlight will come through it, and it will cast beautiful colors on all the people that are gathered in the church. That's a better approach to work. Then he comes up to this woman who's sweeping up the dust, the sawdust and the chips from the carpenters. And he says, oh, I know what you're doing. And she says, no, you don't. Because you think I'm just sweeping. She says, I'm not. I'm helping to build a cathedral to the glory of Almighty God. Now, is that an awesome response to work? The stonecutter, oh, he only saw physical labor and the limitations of what he was doing. The, the artisan saw beauty, earthly beauty, that's a good thing. But that woman saw her role in the kingdom of God as she was sweeping the floor. And so her work was filled with great meaning and great purpose. And what that story tells us is that when we receive our work as a gift from God, and we, as we see, when we see it as God sees it, then it can bring meaning to any task that we undertake. Despite the hampering impact of sin, work still as a gift from God that gives purpose to life. And that's why the Bible encourages us never to deliberately choose idleness over work. And that's what we learn from the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 13. Paul's writing to the believers in Thessalonica, and he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Once again, we need to be clear about what the Scripture is saying and not saying. Paul is issuing a warning here to believers, but it's not about taking time off to rest. We know that rest is incredibly important because the creation story tells us that on the seventh day, God rested. He wanted to demonstrate the importance of taking time off from work. That was a model for us to follow. 
So in this passage, Paul is talking about people who need to work and who are able to work, but who choose not to work. They prefer to be idle. And Paul, as he writes these words through the influence of the Holy Spirit, is telling us idleness is not good. And why is it that idleness is bad for us? It's because if you're not busy at work, you'll be busy with something else. And in the case of the people in Thessalonica, as Paul says, they become busybodies. That means instead of doing productive work, they spend their time sticking their noses into other people's affairs. And that's not useful, and that's not valuable, and that's not meaningful. In addition, unless you're financially independent, choosing to be idle means that you are now relying on others to meet your basic needs. And that's also not good, because it means you're putting your personal responsibilities on another person. Remember, even in the perfection of Eden, Adam was supposed to help provide for himself by taking care of the garden, harvesting the crops. And so anytime we choose idleness over work, we fundamentally misunderstand the purpose of work in the kingdom of God. And that's why Paul sends this very clear message. Work is so important that if you can work, then you should work. That is the responsible way to honor our God. Tragically, this message is increasingly out of step with our culture. Because our society increasingly is devaluing the meaning and importance of work. On Friday, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal that highlighted the growing number of adults of all ages who can work and who need to work and who should work who choose to be unemployed. And why is it that people are making that choice? Because we keep dispensing public money at such levels that we've made it comfortable for people to stay home and be idle rather than to work. And just like the idle people in Thessalonica didn't use their time productively, many people today who are idle don't invest their time in useful ways. The journal reports that many of these idle people are, here's the quote, checked out from civil society, largely disengaged from family care and housework, and they are sitting in front of screens as if that was a full-time job. Brothers and sisters, as people of faith, you and I cannot be part of promoting deliberate idleness because it is not good for human beings made in the image of God. Idleness is not good for our hearts and our minds and our souls, and it is not good for our society. God has created us to work, which means that work is vital to our well-being, so we should embrace it and celebrate it and encourage it. And I really do believe that we should push back against any government, whether it's local or state or federal, that goes beyond providing financial assistance, basic financial assistance to those in need, which I believe is legitimate, 
They go beyond that and they spend funds, public funds, to promote a growing culture of idleness. Because it's harmful. It's harmful to us and it's harmful to our world. Because work matters to God. And God values work over idleness. Now, the Apostle Paul's exhortation here does raise some other questions. For example, what about people who want to work and are willing to work but can't find work? And, and let's face it, at times that's a very real challenge. It's one I sympathize with because I've been through two lengthy periods of unemployment in my life. One lasted 12 months, one lasted 15 months. However, based on that experience, I learned that an unemployed person still can find work to do. You see, even while we continue to look for employment, we can go back to school or we can volunteer in the community or, or serve at church. Those are the kinds of things I did when I was unemployed. And why did I do that? Because I know that idleness is bad for me. And choosing some work to do gave rhythm and meaning and value to my days. And we can invest in other kinds of work even while we're still seeking to find a paid job if we need employment. Well, then what about people who are physically unable to work? That's an entirely different issue. In the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 13, and many other passages remind us to share with people in need. So those of us who can work should be gracious and generous toward those who cannot work. And our God loves it when we choose to be generous with what we have. And we assist those who have not. God values our work. And he wants us to find meaning in our work, whatever it may be. But I think we find the greatest meaning when we realize that ultimately we don't just work for ourselves. We work for God. The Apostle Paul spells this out in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, and he tells us that God is our ultimate boss. Let's take a look. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Paul's writing that to people who work. And it's a very powerful statement, but we have to understand it's a bit controversial because of who he, Paul addresses these comments to. He's giving those, that advice to, to what many Bible versions call slaves. But that's really not an accurate translation. The most accurate translation is bondservants. And there's a vast difference in that time between a bondservant and a slave. Slavery never is right, it's never good, it's never appropriate. But bondservants were not slaves as we understand that term. In fact, you may not realize this, but in many cases, a bondservant in the first century entered into that relationship voluntarily. You signed up for it. You gave yourself to a master with an assigned set of tasks in the home, and you did that in return for food, clothing, and shelter. 
And under the laws of that time, there were established legal ways that your term of bond service could end. So it wasn't like our understanding of slavery. It was very different. Now, now being a bond servant, understandably, wasn't always pleasant because you were under the authority of your master. And yet it's logical to conclude that it couldn't all be bad or people wouldn't voluntarily choose it. And then consider this, even the Apostle Paul on a couple of occasions referred to himself as a bondservant of Jesus. Now for our purposes this morning in understanding the value of work, a bondservant was a key member of a household staff with an assigned set of duties and responsibilities. And every day he had a job to do. And Paul wants those people working in the home to remember that when they work, they don't work for their earthly masters, they work for Jesus. And that same principle actually applies to all of us. In the Garden of Eden, Adam worked for God. And you and I were bondservants of Jesus, so that's who we work for. And yes, we need to be responsible and we need to fulfill our obligations to our employers, but our ultimate boss is Jesus Christ. He's the one we must please. And as we think about working for Jesus, here's something I love to keep in mind. Jesus, the boss, started out as Jesus, the carpenter. He was a worker. He was employed. He clearly understands the demands and the rigor and the challenges of work in the marketplace. I find that tremendously encouraging. Here's what's really important, though. Saying, oh, I work for the Lord. It's not intended to be this nice, spiritual, churchy-sounding statement. God wants you and I to embrace that principle in a way that actually changes how we do our work. In one of the corporations I worked for, I once had an earthly boss ask me to do something that was unethical. And I know if I did that, I would please my earthly boss, but I would displease my heavenly boss, so I told my earthly boss, I'm not going to do it. And then he manipulated a bunch of things so that I could get fired. But you know what? God took care of me, and he took care of my family. The Heavenly Father always takes care of his children when we honor him. But see, when we serve Jesus, it should change how we do our work. Now, thankfully, that situation I described really isn't typical. I think honoring God as our boss isn't often about taking moral stands, though at times it is. I think most often, to adopt that spiritual perspective that I honor Jesus in all I do, I'm working for him, I think what it does is it helps us find greater meaning and greater purpose and greater value and greater satisfaction in our work. And here's what I've learned, that when we work to honor God, we're far more likely to experience God's presence and God's power as we do our work. And that's what God wants for each of us. Because our work, yours and mine, matters deeply to God. In the 1920s, a man named Eric Little burst onto the world scene. 
He was Scottish. He was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. He was a missionary to China. He also was one of the greatest runners of his day. And he competed for Great Britain in the 1924 Summer Olympics. In 1982, that part of his life, the Olympic part of his life, was featured in the movie Chariots of Fire, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture that year. And there's a powerful scene in that movie, and it's based on a true incident where Eric describes why he wants to compete in the Olympics. He's explaining this to his sister. She's also a missionary to China, and she's firmly against Eric participating in these, these games. All this running, it's foolishness, it's unspiritual. You're a missionary, what are you doing wasting time running in the Olympics? And here's what Eric told his sister. I know that God made me for a purpose, for China. But God also made me fast. And listen to this, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Oh, that is so profound. When we understand the abilities that God has given us and we take those abilities and we use them and we, and we do it in a way to honor Him, wouldn't it be natural for our Heavenly Father to be pleased with us? God the Father gave Eric little, the ability to run. And Eric said, thank you, Father, for that gift. And he embraced it, and he ran with every fiber of his being. And God the Father was so pleased that he poured his pleasure into his precious child as his child was running and using that gift from God. And here's what occurs to me. If God wanted Eric to find pleasure, godly pleasure, in something as unspiritual as running. Then wouldn't God want you and I to find pleasure in our work? Since our work matters so deeply to our God. Think about what Eric said to his sister. and Let's transpose that idea to our work. So, for example, let's assume you're an accountant. Wouldn't it be incredible to be able to say, you know, God gave me a love for crunching numbers. That's what I do, and I can do it so well. And when I take this mass of numbers in my company and I bring order out of chaos, when I create a balance sheet and a profit and loss statement using the gifts I've been given by God, oh, I feel God's pleasure. Wouldn't that be great? Suppose you've been given the ability to hammer and saw and nail and work with your hands and you could say, God's given me a love for building. Or when I frame out, a, frame out an addition to a house or when I put siding on a structure or when I lay down a new roof using these abilities given to me by God, oh, I feel his pleasure. Maybe he's given you a love for instructing young kids in the classroom and you're able to say to yourself, you know, when I struggle with those kids and even if they're ornery and they're difficult, but when I am able to teach them and they get it and I see the light and the love of learning pop up in their eyes, oh, I feel the pleasure of my awesome God. 
whatever work we've been given to do using the abilities God has given us, I think that's what he wants us to be able to say and to feel. I feel it as a pastor, but you know what? I felt it in the marketplace. During that time, I was earning my living in secular business. I felt called to be a businessman, and I loved using the skills God had given me to benefit my company and through my company to be a benefit to society, and I tried hard to honor God in all that I did. And on a regular basis, in the midst of the hard and difficult things at work, in the midst of the thorns and thistles, I so often, at the end of the day, could look back at what I'd accomplished and said, oh, it's good. And oh, God, I feel your pleasure. Thank you for the work you've given me to do. When you and I remember where our abilities come from, and we were, when we remember who we work for, then we can find joy and meaning and purpose and satisfaction in whatever God gives us to do even if it's just sweeping the floor. I want to close with a prayer that I ran across many years ago, and I don't know who wrote it, but it reminds us that our work is very close to the heart of God. And over the years, at various times, I've had this prayer on the wall of my office to remind me that there's spiritual value in the work we do. This prayer is called the Prayer of the Worker. And I want you to just join me and listen silently as I offer this prayer on our behalf. Lord Jesus, carpenter of Nazareth, you were a worker as we are. And so we ask that you would give to us and to all the workers of the world the privilege to work in the way that you did. Lord, we want to we productively use the skills you've given us. We want our work to benefit ourselves and others. And we want our work to give glory to God the Father. And we ask that your love would permeate our lives as we work. And through us, may your love permeate our places of employment, our factories and our shops and our offices and our classrooms. We pray that your love would refresh us and sustain us as we work. And help us not to let our work consume us, but to be one satisfying part of a well-rounded life. As we work, Lord Jesus, give us the strength to avoid sin. May we choose to be honest in all our dealings, to be fair, to be ethical. And as we interact with others in the workplace, help us to remember that all men and women have been made in your image, and therefore we should treat everyone, our colleagues, our customers, our competitors, our our students, with dignity and honor. Jesus, by laboring as a carpenter, and then by laboring as an itinerant preacher, you showed us the value of hard work. You showed us the dignity of hard work. May we be responsible and work hard as you did so that when our work is done, we can rest in your peace. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name.
Amen. May God bless you as you work.